My chosen path happened to be um, entertainment, but I really believe that it's my nature. Whatever I would have done, if I would have gone into engineering or if I would have gone into tech, which is something I was really excited about. I love tech. Um, I know I would have had the same nature, which is wanting to be excellent and striving for excellence every day and wanting to make sure that I, you know, have something to say at the table, um, wanting to have a sense of purpose. You know, I'm built like that. Uh, and I love to recognize even the smallest opportunities and, you know, make them um, an advantage for myself. From when I was very young, I chose to go to America when I was 12 years old. I told my parents, I want to study with my cousins because I saw that as an opportunity for myself to experience a different world at 12. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and this is the show where I talk with people who want to live a meaningful life, people who give a damn. Thank you so much for being here. I truly hope today's conversation gives you hope and pushes you to give more dams than ever before. Today, February 9, 2021, is a massive day for my guest. Her memoir, Unfinished, releases today. That's right, friends. My guest is Priyanka Chopra Jonas. Y'all, she is incredible, an absolute gem of a human. And chances are you already know a lot about Priyanka, but in case you don't, let me hit some of the highlights for you. Priyanka has been in the spotlight since she was 17 when she won Miss India and then went on to win Miss World. After that, she got into TV and film and has gone on to become one of the world's most recognizable names and entertainers. Speaking of, you should watch Priyanka's latest film, The White Tiger, on Netflix. It's been out for a couple of weeks. I watched it the other day. It's fantastic. It's kind of like if Slumdog Millionaire and Parasite had a baby. And that's a good thing. It's a wild story about inequality, poverty, the horribly unjust caste system in India, and so much more. You should definitely check it out. She has been named one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time and one of the world's 100 most powerful women by Forbes. And these are just two of the countless awards, nominations, and accolades that she has received over the past two decades. She has spoken out extensively on issues like the environment, income inequality, women's rights, and more. And she has worked extensively with UNICEF for the past 15 years, serving in a variety of ways. In this conversation, we spend most of our time talking about her journey and her new memoir. She is the child of immigrants, so we spend some time digging in there. She lost her father a few years ago, so we spend some time talking about loss and grief and how to move on and how not to move on and how to remember those that we love and lose. There simply wasn't enough time to cover everything I wanted to in our conversation, but we did get a beautiful conversation, I think, that'll help you in a variety of ways. Before we begin, a quick reminder that you can anytime and for any reason email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I'd love to hear from you. And now, without further ado, let's get right into my conversation with the amazing Priyanka Chopra Jonas. Let's go. Is that a real background behind you or is that like a screen? Yes, it is. That's stupid. It's so good. And mine is my shed. Wait, let um, me tell you how this happened, though. Um, when I moved to 
Um, when I moved to uh, London, this was in November because um, I was moving here for filming. My husband and his, um, you know, his creative partner from his company came with me because um, so that we could quarantine together and he, he could be here for the holidays and yeah. he could be working while I was at work. And this guy, his name is Chase. He's insane. He was like, you know what, guys, we're going to be Zooming for a really long time. So I'm just going to set this stuff up for you because you're going to be doing a press tour. You have a book tour coming up. Yep. And he just ordered two lights on Amazon and a digital camera. And that's all it takes. And, you know, it's just like, and of course, a, a find a decent background totally. in your house. But it's really easy to be able to like normalize and beautify the zooming. <laughs> I know. And I have failed. I kept, I kept hoping that this would be over sooner than it has been. Um, and I know, so I kind of accepted it. Yeah. I kind of yeah. accepted it earlier. <laughs> well, good, good for you. I still am just like, man, I hope we're out soon and it's not going to happen, but I just like moved out to my shed and, you know, ran high speed internet out here. And <laughs> here we are. Who, who gives a fuck? We're just moving forward. Yeah. Um, we're just doing the best we can. We're doing the best we can. So Priyanka, I am so thrilled to be speaking with you today. We are going to talk about your life, your career, the ways you give a damn and your forthcoming memoir, which I'm holding in my hands. Um, it's wonderful. I've been reading it over the past couple of days. Uh, oh, thank you for taking the time. For, for this. Oh my God. Are you kidding me? It's, you know, I've, I've seen your life and work from the sidelines, you know, for years now, obviously you're a household name around the world, but this gave, um, and we're going to talk about this here in a minute. This gave me a peek into some things that, and that's obviously why you wrote the friggin' book. Like it gave us a peek into things that other people wouldn't know about, right? If people Google about, you know, grief that you've experienced with the loss of your dad, like they can find certain things, but not in your own words, right? Not like this. And so this is a special memoir, which I'm so excited to dive into. I don't want to move beyond this moment without recognizing that we are recording this podcast conversation um, right when Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are becoming the new president and vice president of the United States. Like I want to, well, I, wanna... I have to say that I actually might have snuck down and looked at it a little bit. Like I saw president Biden, president Biden, president um, Biden. speaking uh, a little bit before I came upstairs to do it. Um, and I also saw um, president Trump ex exiting today. So yes. I, I was, I was like in between the tour, I was, I would keep running down and watching CNN and coming back. It's just such a wild, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. We've got limited time, but I, it's such a wild day, right? I have so many mixed emotions. Um, I, I think I'm correct. I'm not a historian, but I think this is the first non-peaceful transfer of power. This is the first time where the outgoing president, the outgoing disgraced, twice impeached president is not doing what is expected of him. And we've seen that, I mean, I guess we could have expected that, but it was so I mean, weird. We, that was the most consistent thing in the presidency, I think, right. was to expect the unexpected. To expect the unexpected. And 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 it it was so wild over the last few days to see people put it, pulling up clips of, you know, transfers of power from, you know, Bush to to uh, Obama and others. These, these were two people that were very opposed to each other in so many of their policies and so many of their ideas. And there was still this camaraderie there. We are, you know, they are one of a few dozen people that have ever held that position. Let's hand this off. Let's show people that we can do this. And that this wasn't that today. And so it's a weird, like, I'm sad. I really am genuinely sad. Like, I make snarky comments online seeing, you know, Trump's uh, 
uh, helicopter leave the White House for the last time. But really, there's a sadness there, right? There's a sadness that it's come to this. And so I'm sad. I'm happy. Um, you know, our first Indian, um, you know, American vice female vice president, like this is history. So um, that's what I was going to say to you, Nick. And I, I understand how you're feeling. And, you know, um, I'm, I'm not American, but I, you know, America is my second home and I understand the sentiment, but I want to pivot what you're feeling. And I've said this to a few of my friends who are feeling the same way, by the way, I would love to pivot what you're feeling into the fact that America is inheriting a, a form of leadership that we haven't seen for a really long time. Mm. And that's a good thing. We're finally seeing the words that should be coming out of a president's mouth, coming out of a president's mouth, you know? Um, and that's kind of wonderful at, to be able to see a first first female in, in governance at this rank. I come from a country that has had several women as, you know, prime ministers, presidents and in governance. So I really want to say congratulations and welcome to the club. That's, you know, I hope this is the beginning of many such, um, so much more representation. I share your excitement. I have two daughters who are seven, uh, six and seven, and it is a joy to see them today. Right. Yeah. I, I, I wish they would have seen this four years ago. I, I mean, I was distraught on January, you know, in January of 2017 when Trump was sworn in and not Hillary, um, because I really wanted my kids, my kid, all three of my children were born uh, under the Obama administration. And then I wanted them to see their first female president. And so, yes, there is progress. America is very slow. The United better States, late than never. Better late than never, right? And that's something that I'm glad you're pushing me on because I am, God, I can get so like distraught by how far behind we are. You just mentioned that, you know, where, where you're from, there's already been so many females in leadership. Multiple. And we can see, we can see around the world, some of the countries that are doing the best are the being, best run, have are being run by women, right? Yeah. I don't know why we're so fucking like, it's so hard to understand that, that like having this equal kind of leadership and this, this, this equality and this equity among genders and among skin colors and all that, it's good. It's good for us. We need that, right? It's a reflection of how the world should be. Yeah. Um, otherwise, it's skewed. It's not, it's not reality. We're living in some alternate um, dimension where we want to deny, a certain sect wants to deny the fact that, you know, diversity exists or that women in, are demanding equality or the fact that they deserve equality and opportunity that has been denied to them for such a long time, um, where minorities are saying that, look around you, does America look like one person? No, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And let's, that should be the reflection in governance. It should be the reflection in entertainment. It should be the reflection in everything that we do. And, you know, baby steps, but this is a hopeful moment. And I know it's very tumultuous for the country. And I know a lot of my friends are feeling the same way. Um, but I think it's important to hold on to hope and hold on to togetherness and to know that, you know, this country was built on the back of people, of immigrants, technically, you know, and no one except the natives people really are from here. So let's be true to the fact that we're seeing that reflected today and we're, America's yeah. going to be inherited by competence. And, um, and that's something really great to look forward to. That is really, really great. Let's do a couple housekeeping things before we jump into your book, because I want to get to your book. I want to give the bulk of our time there. But you mentioned that before we got on the call, you mentioned that you're in London right now. You moved there in November uh, for work. So how's it been 
uh, pandemic wise. So you guys, I presume were in LA before that for the first chunk of the pandemic. How's the pandemic been for you and your husband and the people you're around? And what's keep, what's what's keeping you excited and going? How are you taking care of yourself during this crazy year? Well, I have to say that when the pandemic first happened, um, we were in India in March for the festival of Holi. And suddenly our friends were like, guys, you got to go because borders are going to shut. And, you know, the, the gravity of it suddenly hit when um, we got onto that flight, landed in L.A. And I remember the mayor making this speech saying that, you know, we're shutting down Los Angeles. And it was the most bizarre moment. I remember I was with... Um, my cousin, her family, and two of our friends, it was like five, six of us that quarantined together for about four, four or five months. Um, but I remember everyone just sitting down and it was like quiet. A pin could have dropped and you would have heard it because that's like some apocalyptic shit, you know? Yeah. You can't make that up. And I remember the gravity of it. Um and in the beginning, I'll admit the first two, three weeks, I may have been like, yes, vacation. You know, I went, I leaned in really hard to, you know, just chilling and eating whatever I wanted and drinking and like sleeping late and whatever yep. and got old real quick. Um, I felt gluttonous. I felt um, like I didn't have a sense of purpose. I started feeling a little bit crazy. Um, but that's when I started writing my book, actually, um, properly. And this book was written because of the luxury of time. Um, I don't remember the last time I've been in a place for more than a month, maybe, maximum two if I was filming a movie. But six months to be able to be in one place, have a sense of routine, was a very big luxury for me. And that's where I had the time to dig so deep into my book, you know. Um, I think if I have written this book at any other time, I don't think it would have been as vulnerable or real. It surprised me, the places I've gone in the book. So that happened. Then I started filming in October. I finished filming two movies. You know, people are watching so much entertainment that someone's got to make it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I'm back at work. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the UK um, TV and film uh, shooting is, is allowed and... Uh, you know, under massive COVID rules. It's really scary to be the only one on set that kind of has to take the mask off um, while everyone's wearing them. And it's it's a weird time to be at work, but I have to say I'm grateful that to the fact that I'm being able to do it. Uh, I think I my work has always been my sense of purpose and I can't imagine that being taken away from me. And I know that's happened to a lot of people in this um, time. Yeah, so we're, I, I in no way want to compare you and me, but in October, we shot the pilot for what hopefully will be a docuseries. So we're taking Let's Give a Damn is not just a podcast, there's a nonprofit element. I'm writing a book as well, and we're doing a TV show, right? And so we're, we're going to sell it this year, hopefully, fingers crossed. But it was weird as well. Like, so in October, when things were really spiking uh, for the second time here in Nashville, um, yeah, it was weird being on set again, not probably not as big of a set as yours, but we had a, we had a big, we had a full team. We had a full, you know, group doing this, shooting this thing. And I was the only one, uh, without my mask. I was like, okay, I, I, we've done everything we can. Everybody's being as cautious as possible. Everybody's got masks on, but it was still just weird because we've lived in these masks, right. For the last, 
you know, at this point, nine, 10 months. So, and it feels um, like that's your sense of safety and normalcy and, you know, and just that moment when I take it off and I have to look around as everyone like at a distance, everyone's wearing a mask and where am I standing? Like, I'm so aware of human proximity (laughs) that, um, without a mask, you feel vulnerable now. So was the, I do. Yeah. Was the, was the, the goal always to have the book released now, or did the, you said you started writing the book a lot more. Did, did the process and the timeline speed up because you just got to writing during the pandemic or what was going on there? It was supposed to release last year because (laughs) (laughs) my intention was um, last year was 20 years of being in the entertainment business for me. And I thought 20 and 2020 was a great sort of time to write a memoir but I just didn't get to it because I was so busy traveling. I didn't have time. Um, and I just, my poor publisher was so lovely and like my editor kept pushing me, but you know, I just couldn't put pen to paper till I had this time. And which is why it's delayed and it's come out the top of uh, 21. But um, it did. The only reason I could write it properly really is because of being home. Uh, again, another sort of parallel, uh, my, I'm writing this book. Well, I say I'm writing it. Is it your first one? First one, still in the very beginning stages. And oh, it's terrifying on on a few different levels, right? Because I obviously am not afraid and neither are you to put stuff out in the world. Like I put these conversations out. We've done hundreds of them. Like I've said a lot of stupid shit and I'm fine with it. Right. Like it's out there, but books feel so final. Like it's and on the permanent. It's it's on the printed paper. I mean, we have books. I I I I've collected some really old books, right? I have books that are hundreds of years old, right? That could exactly. be your memoir. And so it feels so final. And so I've still the last message I got from my book agent was uh not mad, not upset. <laughs> we're, we're good, but I am waiting. Her 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 words were I am waiting with bated breath for you to get me this fucking book, right? So um, still, still, I got a few baited breath messages too. Yeah, to yeah. It's say. like I'm not mad. We're good, but get me the book. Um, <laughs> so true. That's insane. I, I even got my my poor editor was so sweet. She even was like, "Just send me a few pages, whatever you have." I'm right, just right. Thinking. Just send. Oh God, I've gotten the same exact thing. That's hilarious. <laughs> well, you're you're ahead of me. It's out. It's out. It's in front of me right now. And I I'm couldn't glad. stop the presses, Nick. It just it ran away from me. Yeah, <laughs> I tried. Yeah. Uh, one last thing um, before we get into the book. So you're obviously, everybody knows you're married to Nick Jonas, a Jonas brother. Um, so I share the same name and I grew up with a bunch of brothers. I have seven brothers and four sisters. There were 12 kids and four of us, we formed a quartet. Wow. So I grew up in, I think, I think Nick also grew up in like evangelical Christianity or something like that, right? His father was a pastor. Yeah, right. So um and so we had a quartet, like a gospel quartet. Wow. We, called, we called ourselves the Lapara Brothers. Um, so I thought as I was, it just hit me like a few minutes before we even started. I was like, wait, the Jonas Brothers, Lapara Brothers. Um, that's a weird little connection. Obviously. You guys the, are the same, basically. The, the Jonas Brothers went way further <laughs> than we did. I do not want anybody to find our music. That's for sure. But there was a, there's a little bit <laughs> well, of a parallel don't say there. that. Now everyone's going to have to look for it. Guys, go look for the music. I don't think they can And send it to it. me. I, yeah, I think we pulled it. I think, I think we took it off the internet. Um, okay, let's get into this book. Because again, super fascinating. And we, we, I want everybody to go get the book, obviously. Uh, we can't cover everything. It's a, it's a beautiful memoir. You touched on so many amazing parts of your life. We're going to focus on two, well, actually one. We're going to focus on your family. 
your parents, your upbringing, because I think that's super important to dive into. You said some really uh, interesting things that I want to touch on. And then I also want to touch on uh, the death of your father and grief, because I think a lot of people, um, I want to touch on grief and see how you've, how you've gone through that, because whether it's death or not, like grief is a really interesting thing and people don't know how to do it well. So hopefully people can learn from you today on how to grieve. Well, I mean, I've, people are grieving this past year, right? We've lost so much, uh, even over the last few months. And so, I am excited to dive into those. So let's let's begin with you grew up in you were born in India and you grew up there. Talk about a little bit about your childhood leading up to so you know 17 years old, 1999, your your brother's uh you know sort of suggestion that you you know get into pageantry um changed everything for you. But before that, um Talk to me about your growing up in India. I've spent a, a bit of time in India, mostly in Hyderabad and the surrounding area. Love it so much. Can't wait to go back. Um, tell me about your upbringing a little bit, your parents, because um, you seem to have a really deep uh, admiration for them for a lot of good reasons. Absolutely. I think the reason why I've been able to have a sense of self since I was a very young girl was because of the confidence my parents instilled in me about who I was, even through my insecurities. You know, I was never treated like a kid. I was always asked to have an opinion, even in a room that didn't agree with my opinion, even as a kid. Um, I was never laughed at, never shamed. You know, those were, those, those were very crucial part of my parents' parenting. Um, and secondly, I also admired them as people. They were both very ambitious. They had like an amazingly equal partnership in their marriage. At the same time, there was romance and music and flirting. And like, it was just, I, I never saw as I was growing up, you know, the, the complexities that marriage usually has. Um, so my childhood was full of love and my parents were both in the military, both are uh, doctors. So we moved around every two years. Uh, I had a very nomadic upbringing um, within India until I moved to the States as a teenager since when I was 12 years old. But India is, India is not a place. India is not a destination. India is an experience. And you can spend your whole life trying to understand her, trying to get to know her. You can woo her, but she will never um, let you see all of her ever. You know, mm. it's an, you have to, I've spent so much time in India, traveling so many parts of India. My family loved road trips um, to the hills, to the north, to the south. We used to always travel. But I, even I don't know her enough, you know. Mm. You can spend a whole lifetime because India is such a diverse country. Um, every hundred miles you go, you know, it's a different language. Not even, and I don't mean a different dialect, different language. Um, written and spoken, different alphabets, different outfits, different food. Even I haven't tried all kinds of Indian food. You can, you know, so... It's like an onion, the country. You keep peeling and you want to know even more. Um, and she's fascinating. I love um, everything about India is mystical, magical, uh, modern and tradition. And I think I'm an amalgamation of all of that, you know, urban India, rural India, traditional India. Um, and I think my growing, my my childhood till I was a teenager was, is also a mix of East and the West because I spent a large chunk of my life, which were my teenage years, 
which is, you know, your teenagers are such an important part of who you become. And that was time I spent in the U.S. And, you know, so I kind of am a little bit of both. So your your parents, um, let's talk about that a little bit. Your parents in their 32-year marriage, um, and you even pointed out when, as you know, when describing it, that it was a very equal sort of marriage and there was mutual respect and mutual honor. Who taught them that? Where did that come from? Because I know that, and I'm not, I'm not trying to make a blanket statement over India, but there, there are, um, I, I know when I visited there, a lot of the people that I visited, there was this, uh, superiority, between, you know, the men and the women, there wasn't that equal, that equality. Uh, women did certain things and men did certain things. And that doesn't just exist in India. That exists here in the U.S. as well. Like everywhere. That's, that's everywhere, right? So who taught them that marriage is best when it's lived, uh, you know, with equality and with mutual respect and mutual honor, lifting each other up, rooting for each other to always win? I think they were both very independent people growing up themselves. You know, it was kind of um, a trait my mom and dad shared. My mother's mother and grandmother was always about the fact that, um, you know, my daughters are going to have their own vocation. My daughters are going to have their own voice. Um, she pushed them to study. She pushed them to go to college um, and be their own people. So a fierce sense of self was existed in both my mom and my dad. And I think my dad found that very fascinating in my mother. Um, he came from a more conservative background. And uh, I think together, when she brought in this fresh perspective of, you know, 70s kids, at, this was that time when um, men and women all around the world were kind of finding, you know, freedom and music and voice. And my mom loved Elvis and, you know, she was a very independent girl and my dad loved that about her. So I think she demanded respect and um, she commanded respect, I'll say. I don't think she demanded respect. She commanded respect. And my dad was a secure enough man to be able to give it to her. And it kind of just organically became, their marriage became what it did because I remember since I was very young, my dad you know, asking my mom's opinion in everything, specifically business, specifically like, you know, finances, um, which is usually a man's technically, you know, the way we yep. have society is structured, a man deals with all of that. But in my family, it was always my mom. Um, so I think they kind of created a respect for each other and organically found their own roles within within their marriage, which was so wonderful to see. And how has their marriage affected your marriage, I would expect in a deep way, because you talk incessantly about your admiration for them and all the amazing things your mom did, which, you know, probably got passed on to you because you've gone on to do some pretty incredible things as well. But is there any specific ways in which their marriage has affected your, you know, blossoming marriage here? Um, I think every marriage has got to be an individual journey, but I'm sure, sure seeing, you know, the solid marriage that my parents had and Nick parents, Nick's parents have, um, is so wonderful to be growing within, you know, the blessings of seeing what the, that solid partnership can be, you know, when even like my, my parents till my dad died, you know, they loved hanging out with each other, talking to each other, just like doing things together. I see Nick's parents that doing the same thing. And, you know, um, I'm someone who believes in a partnership. I always have believed in being able to find <clears throat> someone who's your own in your corner. And 
is the family you choose. And um, I come from a lineage and I've inherited a lineage of that. So it's, it's sort of great to have that. Yeah, absolutely. So 17, uh, you know, 1999, you are still thinking that you're going to get into, uh, you know, you're going to be an aeronautical engineer, right? That was the path. That, that you was a big on. dream. Oh, that was I, the big dream, right? Yeah. That but was you, a big but, dream. but, but, but to, in order to have that dream, you're thinking more academically, you're thinking more mm-hmm. technically. And then this big shift happens in your life. Um, how do Talk about that experience. Talk about, because you just said that, you know, it's in 2020, you celebrated 20 years uh, in the entertainment industry, you know, starting with in the year 2000, you know, uh, winning, what's the title? Miss India World. Is that, did I get it in the right order? Right. Mm -hmm. So big changes. You're thrown onto the, you know, thrown onto the global scene. Talk about that period uh, of wanting to be, you know, the big dream being an engineer Mm -hmm. and then life saying, nah, it's not that you're going to, you're going to be in, you're going to be in entertainment. What was going on there? And how did your, how did your family react to that? Were they supportive? Um, talk about that 1999 to 2001 sort of period. It was crazy because I just came back to India from America when I was 17. And, um, sorry to say, but high school in America doesn't prepare you for education around the world. Um, I went back, I went back to India and I was suddenly failing when I, in high school in the U.S., I was in honor classes, you know, and I couldn't keep up. Kids were doing like integration and I'd never even heard of that in math. And I was just like, what is happening? Um, So these big exams called the board exams were coming up and you, it's like the SATs, they kind of contribute to your academic future. Um, and this was 12th grade and I was drowning. And, um, so when this happened and it happened because my brother wanted to, you know, get his room back, which my dad gave me when I came back, cause I was a teenage girl. He was like, of course you need your own room. And my brother was kicked out of his room. He was 10 years old. You know, I don't know how he came up with this, but he told my mom, I had just gotten these mall shots taken, you know, those pictures like soft focus with your like glamour shots. Yes. Yeah. Glamour yeah. shots. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. And that had just happened, not because I wanted to be um, a model, but I was actually taking pictures for a scholarship program. And the photographer was like, oh, you're really pretty. Can I take your pictures? And I was a teenager and I was like, yeah, teenage vanity, you know, I was like, yeah, sure. Um, So those pictures and my brother was like, there's this pageant, it's called Miss India. And we all used to watch Miss India, you know, it was a big deal in India at the time. And he was like, let's just send these pictures because, you know, she's tall, she's pretty, whatever. My mom, I don't know what came over her. She sent it. I have no idea of any of this. You know, I'm still like drowning, trying to give my exams at this point. And suddenly I get this call. I was at home that afternoon and I picked up the phone and this girl from the pageant says, you know, wear your swimsuit and I mean, bring your swimsuit, wear and address, do your, you know, get dressed and arrive in Delhi and you're um, in the semifinals for Miss India. And I was like, huh? (laughs) How'd that happen? I swear, I thought, you know, when I've just come back from America to small town in small town Bareilly, all the kids in my school used to stare at me because I, a high school kid in America, a girl, 16, I'm wearing makeup, I'm wearing heels, my hair is did, my makeup's did. And kids in India, like, you wear a uniform to school. There's a protocol of how 
you're supposed to look. But I, so kids used to look at me like I was some peacock or something. And, you know, so I kind of had a sense of vanity. And when I got a call back, I swear I thought it was because kids in my school used to look at me like, you know, with awe that somehow the Miss India pageant had magically heard about me from my, uh, my ego was really um, burst open when my mom said what she did. And I just, I swear to God, my intention was just to skip my exams and have a reason for doing them. That's why I went into the Miss India pageant, but I'm a competitive bitch. You know, once I was there, um, I was like, okay, what can we learn? What can we quickly learn so that I swim? And uh, I learned how to walk on heels. I learned how to, you know, I I watched all the other girls were professional models and stuff. So I like learned, I saw what they did. And I won Miss India. I was sent for Miss World um, to represent India. I won that at 18. And then just, I was like, okay. And all of this has happened in less than a year, by the way. It's not even the end of the year and I'm suddenly, you know, being interviewed by global press and having an opinion on, you know, economic crises around the world. And I'm like just out of high school. Right. So it was, it was a quick pivot and, you know, I'd learned really quickly, but I realized that I could. And, um, you know, I saw that this is a door that sort of opened for an opportunity I'd never even thought I could have. And I recognized that very young. Yeah. And I, you, you, you share this quote in the book. You said, if you're willing to be a student of life, the possibilities are endless. And it seems like, you know, maybe before that you had already, you already knew that, but you were starting to experience that, that these, you know, life is full of these uh, opportunities. Yes. Everybody's in a different place, but life is full of these opportunities where you can ignore it. Uh, or you can really take the bull by the horns and ride it to the end, you know, all the way to the end. And it's in it's it's clear in your life so far over the last twenty years that you've done that, that you have looked at every part of life as an opportunity, and you have gone after it. Right? You've said how what what, what what's in this? How how big can this get? How how much can I? How far can I go here? Right? Um, exactly. And, that- and my chosen path happened to be um, entertainment. But I really believe that it's my nature, whatever I would have done, if I would have gone into engineering or if I would have gone into tech, because something I was really excited about, I love tech. um, I know I would have had the same nature, which is wanting to be excellent and striving for excellence every day and wanting to make sure that I, you know, have something to say at the table, um, wanting to have a sense of purpose. You know, I'm built like that. Uh, and I love to recognize even the smallest opportunities and, you know, make them um, an advantage for myself. From when I was very young, I chose to go to America when I was 12 years old. I told my parents, I want to study with my cousins because I saw that as an opportunity for myself to mm-hmm. experience a different world at 12. And, you know, so, and I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what it was like going to a high school in America. God knows I didn't know what that meant. But um, I learned. I learned. Um, if there was ever a choice, and I say this in the book, to sink or swim, I'm not the kind of person who'll sink. Yeah, you're going to give it your damnedest to swim. Yeah. 
you know, you, you went to, you went to the U S or you, I guess I'm here. You came to the U S when you're 12, 13, <laughs> did a high school, you know, did a few, you didn't go, you're, I'm here. You did a few years here and then you went back and you talked about how, you know, American high school did not prepare you super well. Right. So I grew up in Guatemala. I was born in the U S and then my dad is Guatemala and we moved back there for 10 years. And, you know, a lot of the kids that I was around, this is something that I wish I wish your experience and I wish my experience on every American kid. Here's why. Because when you start branching out, it is impossible to believe in American exceptionalism when you get out into the world. Because you start seeing that there is so much goodness and greatness out there. I mean, the kids I went to, the, the kids that were my friends on my block in Guatemala you know, a, a third world war-torn country. We, we moved there right as the civil war was ending. There was violence everywhere. It was crazy. The kids I knew, knew anywhere from three to five to six languages, right? They had studied in Europe. They, they knew how to speak, at least, at the very least, they all knew Spanish and they could speak English as well as I could or better, right? So at least they knew the two languages. You come to the States and kids here can barely speak the one language that they've been given, right? Like literally there's just terrible grammar everywhere all the time. And we've been so conditioned to believe that America is the best at everything that kids don't want to go branch out, right? They don't want to go study abroad. They don't want to believe that there are other amazing, great places out there. And so I wish, you know, you, you mentioned in the book that this cultural mashup of your life, you know, you said it invigorates me. It's important to me because I believe that we can all learn from one another, that we all need to learn from one another. And I wish that on American, not just children, Americans. I wish that on people living in this country because it's really, I think it has really hurt us to not believe the best about the rest of the world, to believe that we uh, are better than them and to not go out and learn from them, right? It's so funny you're saying that, Nick, but when I first came at 12 to the States, I moved to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And I remember when I was in high school there, it was a great experience. I met some amazing kids. Sure. I discovered Hot Pockets. It was awesome. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I remember having this conversation with um, some girl that I was talking to. And uh, I got a sense that, you know, she was like, I've I don't even have a passport. I've never, I didn't, I don't know anything about other countries. She asked me, um, if I go to school on an elephant in back in India, there was a, a level of ignorance, which was crazy, but I took it upon myself to educate them. So in world history class, I remember I did a whole uh, presentation about what India looked like and what countries outside the US looked like. And I remember this girl coming to me and being so fascinated by the fact that, you know, technology at that time which was late 99.9, you know, technology was kind of just erupting around the world, specifically in India. Tech was a really big deal. And I, you know, remember her looking at like really um, sort of high buildings and and being like, I didn't know that, you know, there were buildings like that, et cetera, um, and cars. And, and, I, and this is ninth grade, okay? And she was also like so fascinated by by the fact that, you know, she didn't even know about different countries in the world. And I think it came from, and you hit the nail on the head, but I think it comes from a sense of, you know, we're um, self-sufficient. We don't need to be curious, but that's the beauty of social media, I feel. Like, yes, there's the pros and the cons and 
Um, but with streaming and social and the internet, actually, the internet was the the, the change um, I, that I see in America from the time that I was a kid to the time I've come back now, the curiosity of cross-pollination of cultures, of different people from different parts of the world actually fighting for, you know, representation is creating an education within America about different ethnicities. And, and I think that's, that's why it's so important uh, to normalize different people in, within entertainment. Like that's a big quest of mine. Um, to be able to, you know, see various kinds of movies from different parts of the world or different kinds of people, just exactly like what America looks like represented on entertainment. Because when I was a kid, when I was 13, 14 in the US, I didn't look, I didn't see anyone on TV that looked like me, except maybe Apu from The Simpsons. And that was also a white guy. But like, I didn't see that, right? But I wonder if I did see that if like Xena was Indian, say, for example, considering I saw so many Indian Americans in America or, you know, somebody like, would that have made me feel a little mm. less solitary or a little less alone? Yeah. So I, I was, I was looking up something on my phone because my mind is, is, is burnt out right now, but you're right. Even like there are so many in your industry, in the film industry, there are so many incredible films and incredible filmmakers and incredible stories being told, not just films, TV shows, docu-series that Americans never watch. They never go look for because again, we're, we've created this environment where it's like, we, we can make our own films. We can make our own TV. We don't really need anybody else. When you start branching out though. And I love, I love foreign films, foreign documentaries um, because they really like, again, you can't, once you explore and you realize that, that the world is great. When you realize that it's better to be a citizen of the world than it is to be a citizen of a, a particular country and to have this sort of nationalistic view of your surroundings, the world gets bigger and better. The world gets more awesome. You get to start enjoying more, you know, whether it's music or poetry or films. And- um, But I think even just America, Nick, is not one ethnicity. It never it's was. No, nope. it's a, It's a country built by immigrants except for native people, everyone has come from somewhere yep. into this country. And that's the greatness of this country is, you know, it's the land of dreams and you come in here, you can be whoever you want. So when you talk about entertainment and that we should be, when we make our entertainment, we're good enough. What, who's the we? hundred percent. Like what is that? Who decides what that entertainment looks like? Cause it doesn't look like what America is really. It doesn't, you know, it, it's not reflective of so many ethnicities that actually make up this country. And, and sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to say, and this is the hard work. I don't want to make this, we don't even have enough time to get into, you know, uh, <laughs> political things right now. But if you look at, if you look at what's happening in this country right now, you just talked about who's the we, right? That is an important question. And there are tens of millions of people that when they say we they're talking about whiteness. They're talking about what white people make. And that's, Absolutely. that's, when, that's when very clear the, this, this, you know, this, the, the now former president, thank God, former president Trump, um, the, the, the permission that he gave to tens of millions of people to say that out loud. And I'm kind of, I like, it's been a very terrible four years, it's been really hard. But I'm also kind of glad because now we know where we stand more than we did before. I think before Trump came into office, we, I wouldn't have been able to say this with as much boldness that 
maybe half of America, half of the United States of America, when they say we, they mean white. They mean whiteness. They mean white culture, which isn't even a culture. They mean whiteness. And that's the hard work. I think that is it because you're so right to point, to push back and be like, don't, you don't even have to leave the United States of America here. There don't are even think about the world. Hundreds of languages. Let's not, let's not get crazy. Right. Let's not live on the edge guys. Let's just nope. look within the country. And we have a ton of work, even just to, even just to uh, sort of revitalize this idea that when we say we, we must, we must mean all kinds of people all kinds of ethnicities, all kinds of skin colors, all kinds of art, all kinds of business. Uh, we must mean that. We can't just mean we, oh, like white culture. Um, I have to say though, America, North America is one of the few countries that has the luxury of having so many different people that are that make up America. You know, so many different countries and ethnicities that make up America. I'm not American, but that's the that's the beauty that I love about this country. I love being able to meet people from anywhere in the world, experience any culture from the world right within this country yeah. to see opportunity can be created for any gender, any um, ethnicity within this country. And yes, that I mean, that's the greatest thing about this country. And that's what we need to push and we need to champion. Yeah. And I'm very hopeful, kind of looping back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, talking about President Biden and Vice President uh, Harris, is that we need to be hopeful that that can happen. We need to be hopeful mm -hmm. that, we're, that this new administration and new ideas, fresh ideas, will push us closer to realizing just how rich and how amazing this country is for being a place that anyone can come to. And make yeah, and let's leave themselves. behind the violence. Let's leave behind the division, the divisiveness. Let's like, you know, the polarization. I think this this should be a day, and it's ironic that we're talking at this time and we can't help but talk about it, but this should be, you know, a beacon of, I think, love. I'm a humanitarian. I'm not political. I consider myself apolitical, but I truly believe that, you know, the only thing that can bring people together is togetherness. And instead of being afraid and being polarized, I think it's really important to lean into each other and to lean into community. And um, I hope that this is a great way of, you know, the country going in that direction. Yeah, here at Let's Give a Damn, we talk about fewer walls, longer bridges, bigger tables. I am a, I, I, I tend, I lean toward extremism and I want to make these like brash, you know, overarching statements. But at the end of the day, the best way, the, the best way to be together is togetherness. The best way is to like seek to, okay, I might not agree with you on 90% of who you are and what you totally. do, but how, where can we meet? Where can Agree we to disagree is great. It's fine. That's the beauty of human beings. We were we're not twins. We're not all born born with the same opinions and you know uh, minds. We're always going to have difference of opinion, but that 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 shouldn't be so divis divisive that it ends up becoming violent and you know creates hate. And I'm so terrified of the the world that the you know children of the future are going to inherit. And that, that should be our problem. Every generation's responsibility is to take the world that we were given and leave it a little bit better. But are we really doing that? Yeah, yeah. At the beginning of every podcast episode, and I'll say it with you as well, when we, when we put this out, as I say, all of my guests want to leave the planet better than they found it. Like that's the one thing that brings us all together. We're all attacking it from different angles, but that has to be the goal. You know, my parents always used to say that when I was growing up, you know, we'd go over a friend's house to visit or even in our own home. It was like, leave this room better than you found it. Like 
In other words, if, if, there, if you came into this room to play with your friends and there was some stuff already here, make sure all that's gone when you're, when you're finished. Like, leave Just it better than when you found it. Just do something to contribute. It gives such a sense of purpose. And if you yeah. can contribute to humanity, if you can contribute to the world and, you know, you have the luxury and the privilege of being able to do that, what a gift. What a gift indeed. Okay, we've got a couple minutes left and I want to hit on two more things. Um, one is grief. And the other is, you know, you mentioned that you're first and foremost a humanitarian and you've done incredible work. So I want to, I want to sort of highlight again, I want people to go read the book so they can read about it more. But so in 2013, after years of battling, uh, your dad passed away, uh, two months before his 63rd birthday. Um, how do I want to approach this here in just a couple minutes? Um, you know, you started that chapter, I think it's chapter seven or eight with this quote, be patient towards all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign language. How did you deal with grief then? How was that experience for you? How have you grown in learning how to deal with grief? Because obviously it doesn't go away. One of my favorite books about uh, grief in the world is A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis. Have you ever read that book? I, I highly recommend it just for anybody, whether you're dealing with grief or not. He wrote it after his wife, Joy Davidman, died. And he writes in there that the death of a beloved is an amputation. There's so many, there's so many amazing ideas regarding grief in that short book. It's one of his shortest books, one of his most impactful, though. Um, but yeah, losing a loved one is like an amputation. And in amputations, you can put something in its place. You can put a prosthetic, you know, limb in that place, but that amputation is forever. It doesn't change, especially when it's a loved one as close as a mother or father. So how did you deal with that grief? And how have you grown in learning how to deal with grief? Um, my dad to me was, you know, more than just a father. I kind of really looked up to him. I wanted to be him when I grew up. I wanted mm. to, you know, take over a room the way he did. I love the fact that he would walk into a room and be the life of a party. And, you know, he never seemed to have needed to you know, ask for attention. He always got it. He was just magnetic like that. And I really, um, I was his fan and, mm -hmm. and he was my biggest champion. Um, in turn, he became mine, you know, um, every single thing that I did, my dad was the loudest, you know, cheerleader in the room, much to my embarrassment sometimes, <laughs> but, but, um, till I was much older. Um, so losing him was like, losing you know an unconditional someone with unconditional belief in your abilities I felt like my dad always believed that anything I touch I would be excellent at he just had so much faith and I believed in me because of him believing in me and I felt like I lost that and um, I was also at a time where there was a lot of you know loss in my life, um, a relationship. I was leaving my country. I just moved to America. I was starting a new show. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any friends. Um, and I was just alone on set for almost 15, 16 hour days every day for 11 months. Um, so it was a really solitary, dark time. And it all sort of compounded together for me. And I think what I found really helpful was I allowed myself to mourn mm. all of it. I didn't fight it. I, you know, canceled dinners with friends. I would come back home and just watch TV on the couch. I ordered 
you know, oily Chinese food if I wanted to eat it or pizza. And, you know, I kind of went back to work and I was a zombie, but I delivered. I kind of just leaned into the seduction of sorrow. You know, it's very seductive. It's just like there's a comfort in wearing your sweats and not wanting to talk to anyone and incubating. And I did that for a good, like, two years, I think. And and then I was just bored and sad by being sad. Um, I've always loved life. I believe it's a gift. And um, I saw that, you know, the career that I had built with so much blood, sweat, and tears, I would lose that if I lost my sense of focus. And I was losing my sense of focus. I wouldn't go to work prepared. I would go to work late. I would not sleep enough. I was, you know, not eating right. And I was just feeling gluttonous. And I chose myself. I said, I know I'm feeling sad, but I choose to take one step every day towards light, which started with maybe, you know, not living in the same routine that I did, which was coming back from work, sinking into my couch, you know, ordering some food and like a blanket. And I didn't, I stopped doing that stuff. I started meeting people. I took my dog out for a walk, like tangible changes, little tangible changes really helped me come out of the physicality of my sorrow. And emotionally, I had to come terms with the fact that it wasn't going to go away. When people say, get over it, you'll get over it, it'll, you don't get over it. It's, it's, it's like a friend. It's a companion. It's someone that hangs out the back of your head. Some days it'll come out for a long time. Some days it'll not come out. And, you know, um, the degree in which it comes in and out depends on the p- amount of peace you make with it. So I made peace with the fact that everyone bo- is born and everyone has to die. And my dad's life was shorter than it should have been. I think he, you know, it was cut short long before it should have been. But the only thing to do under that circumstance is to celebrate the life lived instead of mourning the life lost. And coming to terms with that, which took me a long time to do. It took about four years for me to get there. But once I got there, I remember my dad with so much joy. I remember his stupid jokes and, you know, repeat them at parties. And, you know, I'll make his favorite drink or order his favorite wine and um, do the things that he sort of inspired me to do. And, you know, his zest for adventure, his zest for life, I'd forgotten it. And he would have been so sad to see me like that because, I, you know, he had a very gentle heart and was a very sensitive man. And I just kind of, you know went back to remembering him for all the joy and the light instead of the sadness. And that really helped me move on. There's so much wisdom in there. And I love you pointing out, and, and this goes back to earlier where you said that you're, a, you're, you're committed to being a student of life, is that suffering, you know, really realizing that life has a, a beginning and an end. And we that's that's all of us. Every single one of us will experience the end of life. Some unfortunately, sooner than others. But realizing that gives you a new appreciation for life, first of all. Totally. And you get to you get to sort of see pain and suffering as um, a, a companion, a teacher, instead of, because I think the worst thing that we can do when we're experiencing grief and loss is try to shun those feelings. 
uh, uh, perpetually. Again, we might have some, we might have to really like get comfortable. I did for first. two years and 100%. then got to a place where I dealt with it. Yeah. yeah. You deal with it and you don't, you, it's like you said, it's always going to be there. So why not yeah. befriend it, quote unquote, befriend it and say, okay, how can I learn from this to become a stronger uh, person in the future, right? From this suffering. I mean, the Stoics got so much right, I think. And one thing was their view of like suffering. They didn't, they didn't, they looked, they looked at suffering straight in the eyes and did not ignore it, did not, did not try to hide themselves from it, but say, what can I learn from this? How is this, how can this be used for my benefit? Um, and that helps us actually move forward. That helps us be get, get it get to the place where we can order our loved ones, you know, favorite wine or drink and start to tell those jokes and kind of live, continue. That's how they because that's how they continue to live, right? Continue they're gone their legacy. They're gone far too soon, but we can continue the legacy instead of again kind of shutting it out. Um, so much wisdom in that chapter on uh grief. Let's end with this. Um, we won't I won't dive into all the amazing things you've done, uh, humanitarian speaking, but you've worked with UNICEF for years. Uh, you have the Priyanka Chopra Foundation for Health and Education. You've helped so many uh, young girls and others through your work. Why do you do that, right? So there are two, you obviously have a lot of, uh, because of the incredible work you've done, you've built up you know, resources and you have freedoms that other people don't have. And you have certain kinds of people at this point in life. Some that say, I have a lot, therefore I need to do something with it, right? And then you have others that, don't do as much. They kind of like use it on just themselves and maybe maybe to ease their conscience, they do things. But that doesn't seem, again, looking at your breadth of work, this is not a an easing of your conscience because of all the stuff that life has given you through your hard work. It seems like you genuinely care about these things. So why? Why is, why is describing yourself as apolitical but very much humanitarian uh, a thing for you? Why is your humanitarian work important? Well, I was raised in, a, again, my parents were like philanthropists, philanthropists from the beginning. You know, they used to always have two beds in the hospital that were always free of charge. Anyone could come and they would get free treatment. They always did, they did medical camps where they would go give free treatments into villages where people couldn't afford it, you know, and we weren't patted on the back when we did something to help right. someone. It was just expected of us. So I was raised in an environment where I remember the story and it's a very small example of what my parents were like. I was, mom put a glass of milk in front of me and um, I was being a brat and I was like, I don't want to have it. And I kind of like threw the milk on the ground and she looked at me and she said something to me that I've never forgotten, which is a baby calf gave this up for you. And just the visual of, you know, this was, this belonged to that baby, but now it's yours and you're wasting it. Being wasteful was even considered not a good thing. So I think being acutely aware of your privilege, I came from a country where, and even in the world, if you have a roof over your head and the ability to, you know, give your children meals every day or your family and provide for your family, that's privilege. Mm. And no matter how badly you off, badly off you are in life, somebody is worse off than you. And it is the responsibility of the privileged to care about the rest of the world, which as a majority lives under very hard circumstances. And that was something inculcated in me from when I was a child, when I was five years old. Um, it was always something that, you know, compassion and empathy towards between the haves and the have nots um, is very important. And I was very aware of. I 
I come from a very unassuming background, a middle-class family. Everything that I have built has been on my own steam and my own back, you know. Um, my career is self-made and everything that comes along with it is self-made. Um, but from whenever I've had, which has been always, because my parents always provided for me, I've always believed that the gift of time, the gift of compassion, gift of money, if you can, the gift of you don't have to empty your wallet to be a philanthropist or a humanitarian. You can yep. look around you and offer someone a smile, go yes. visit an old person, go, you know, give your toys that you don't use or your clothes, donate that, don't waste food, don't waste water. Don't, you know, every human life can contribute into making the world better if only we're aware and we're conscientious about it. And I was made aware of that because of my upbringing. And then Going into actually the pageant world at a very early stage, I took that very seriously when I realized that, oh, this is what happens when you have a platform. You can use it and talk about things that people don't think about. And that's what I had to do when I was Miss World. And I continued to do it as my career as a public person sort of evolved you know, um, and that's a really large part of me. But at the same time, I do believe that social responsibility is very individual. You can't thrust that upon people. No. Nope. Um, but I think it is extremely important for parents to teach their children that they have a social responsibility. And I think it's very important for us to, people who are woke or are aware of the fact that we can contribute to any aspect of making the world a little bit better, um, should be aware of doing that. Um, and that's why I do it. I, you know, make sure I take time out of my schedule every year to, you know, have boots on the ground and um, actually make a difference. It's a very big part of who I am. Well said, and a wonderful way to wrap up our conversation. I wish I had hours more with you. I, I think the world. I think the world of you. Great memoir. I hope everyone listening, and I'll encourage them. Link in the in the show notes and all that. Everybody, go buy this memoir, Unfinished. Uh, it's fantastic, and um, I wish you well during this book tour, this virtual book tour, <laughs> and as the book comes out. So this we're recording it on January twenty, but it releases uh, on the day that your book comes out. So hope everyone goes and gets it. Thank you Felice so much. Release is February 9th. Um, yeah, February 9th. Amazon, Barnes & Noble's, wherever. Yes, how terrifying. <laughs> I know. It's 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 coming out into the world. Super exciting. So, Oh, don't uh, worry. You're going to experience it soon. Like. I know. Well, it won't, it won't be. Come on. I'm little old me here in Nashville, Tennessee. It won't be as terrifying, but I'm excited for it to come out when it, whenever it comes out. It's going to be great. Make sure you send me one, right? I want I will. an autograph copy. I will. I will send you one. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Dear friends, thank you so much for joining Priyanka and me today. Priyanka is amazing, and I hope you'll dig into her life and work after listening to our conversation. And please go buy her memoir, Unfinished. Don't buy it from Amazon. Buy it through your local bookstore. And please visit letsgiveadam.com to learn more about what we're up to at Let's Give a Damn. Friends, I'm so grateful you're here. Thank you for showing up. This episode was edited and sound designed by the team at Sound On Studios. You can find out more about their work at soundonsoundoff.com. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at helloletsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now. <laughs>